The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. turn to 1 Kings chapter 19, where we're continuing in that book and our study of the, the life of the prophet Elijah, zeal for righteousness in evil days is the theme of our series. And we come to chapter 19. We saw last week that climactic portion where God sent fire on the mountain to consume the offering and the altar and the great victory over the prophets of Baal and the Lord hearing Elijah's prayer for rain and sending rain after three and a half years. A spectacular chapter, really. And now we take up our text in chapter 19, verses 1 through 18. Hear the word of God. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with a sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid, and he arose, and ran for his life, and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, and came and sat under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree, and behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak 
and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abel-Malahalah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Father, we ask for your help in understanding and applying your word. Build us up, we pray, and speak to us by the power of your spirit, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. We have been to the mountaintop with Elijah. And now we go with him into the wilderness. And this text before us is a challenging passage. Many commentaries agree that this is a momentous passage, one of the foremost passages in the Old Testament. But there's a lot of debate about it, about Elijah's state of mind And if he needs to be psychoanalyzed here, what goes on under the broom tree or the juniper tree, as it also is called, and how sinful he is being or how right he is being and some of the things he has said, are they half-truths, as some commentaries say? I read a number of commentaries in the past week or two and a lot of divergent views about these things, so I'm going to give you my view of it. Uh, which will tell you the places that I'm not sure about, but clearly an important passage. And we want to look first, as the first main point, uh, as, as of four features of our text. And then the second main po- point, we want to look at this theophany, this appearance of God, the presence of God on the mountain with Elijah. First, four features that come out from our text. The first is this. We see at the beginning of chapter 19 a still hard-hearted monarchy. A continually hard-hearted monarchy. Verse 1, Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. And then Jezebel sends this messenger to Elijah. So may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. This is not just a threat against Elijah. This is a clear statement of the future direction of King Ahab and Queen Jezebel. One commentary speculates about what this discussion looks like with you know, Ahab, King Ahab arriving back from the mountain and tells Queen Jezebel, who wasn't there, by the way, Oh, honey, hi. Um, fire came down from heaven and burned the altar at Elijah's prayer, and all the prophets of Baal have been killed. And 
Jezebel with, you know, her face covered with mascara and lipstick and everything because we know she was the evil queen. So what, Ahab? My program of Baal worship is going to continue. Who cares what happened on that mountain? That's just one. That's my ad lib of that one commentary's speculation. But clearly, the heart of Jezebel hadn't changed. And clearly, King Ahab's ability to rein in his queen was not going to go very far. Even after fire from God fell, even after rain came at the request of Elijah, Jezebel was far from being converted. Same with, the, with Ahab. She is not changing her direction at all. If anything, now she is enraged. And it tells us something about how far external things go in changing hearts and lives. They don't go that far. Change does not take place by this demonstration of the power of God. It helps us to understand something about this. And Ahab, we don't know the exact state of his heart, but clearly he lacked the spiritual conviction to do anything in contradiction to Jezebel. What about the people of God? Well, we don't know for sure. We see what Elijah eventually says, and uh, we'll see unfolding as we look through, if you read through First and Second Kings, that there's a remnant of believers, but clearly not everyone who was on the mountain when the fire fell truly was converted or truly was changed from within. And Elijah is pessimistic. Now, we have to deal with this question at the beginning of verse 3, where it says, notice there, then he, Elijah, was afraid. I'm sad that the ESV didn't even include the other reading here that the NIV has, and you might know that if you have a King James version, they actually translate it there, then he saw. So there is a question about whether that verb, which is, hangs on just one letter in the Hebrew text. The Hebrew, most Hebrew manuscripts go with, then he saw. The Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament has, he was afraid, and the ESV goes with that reading. I think the best translation is really the more difficult one, uh, he saw, then he saw. In other words, there's debate about this, but I take the view that Elijah saw the situation with Queen Jezebel, with King Ahab, with the future direction that they were going to go, that there weren't really going to be any fundamental changes. And and as the monarchy goes, so goes the nation. That's how it was for the nation of Israel, into continuing apostasy and spiritual darkness. And the narrative of First and Second Kings, as you, as you go ahead and read it, bears this out. Yes, God is doing his own quiet, hidden work at the same time, but the narrative bears out that there's not widespread revival and reformation. Mount Carmel and the fire from God didn't fundamentally alter this course. I just want to make a brief point of application here. This should encourage us. Maybe it's an encouragement in a backhanded kind of way. Don't we wish that somehow God would do something spectacular 
and wake up the nation. You know, wouldn't fire from heaven be good? Well, rarely does God do that. Sometimes in the Bible he does that, but more often than not, he doesn't. Because God's program for changing hearts and lives is by the preaching of his word, by his weak and failing servants who teach and preach his word by his people who go out and tell others that there is the bread of life. There is the living water in Jesus Christ and people's lives are transformed from within by the power of the spirit and the word of God, not by seeing something stupendous. It should encourage us in our day and we'll come back to this point at the end. So we see see a still hard-hearted monarchy. But secondly, another feature of our text, we see a weak servant. Here at the beginning of chapter 9, we see in verse 3, Elijah, he rises and ran for his life. And by the way, Jesus will later on tell us that there are times that believers should flee from one city to the next. So it is not necessarily unwise or sinful for Elijah to flee. And there's a debate about that. Maybe he had sinful fear. Maybe, maybe some of, certainly we're going to see when he prays that he might die, there's certainly some sin involved with that. But he flees, he goes about 100 miles south to Beersheba, and then he leaves a servant there, and he goes further into the wilderness a day's journey and sits down under this broom tree, this juniper tree, and he, we see his prayer here, and he asks that he might die, saying, it is enough now, O Lord, Take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. We see a very discouraged servant of God here. We could even use the word depressed. He uses the phrase, take my life, Lord. And remember, this is Elijah, the great man of God, who stood boldly before Elijah, before Ahab. And when Ahab says, you troubler of of Israel, Elijah's reply was, you're the one who's troubling Israel by leading the nation into spiritual apostasy. Here's the prophet who had prayed that it wouldn't rain out of his great heart for the kingdom of God, and it didn't rain for three and a half years. Here's the man who by faith was fed by ravens at the brook and who who received this food directly, we would say, by the providence of God and was with the widow of Zarephath and the jar of Uh, oil and a a jar of flour did not run out. This is the one who single-handedly almost, you would say, defeated the prophets of Baal on the mountain with his humble prayer, and God responded by sending fire. This is a man, look, our sermon series is titled, Zeal for Righteousness in an Evil Day. But Elijah was deeply, deeply discouraged. Now, some point out elements of possible self-pity when he finally on the mountain says to the Lord, I'm the last one left. Possibly that is so. I preached a sermon on this text over 30 years ago and I took more of that view. So even I've changed my view. How do you like that? But here he's a broken man. And the, what is the reason for his brokenness here? Here's a man who had high expectations, high hopes for reformation, for national revival. And now he has seen 
that it's probably not going to come about. He sees the direction of the monarchy which sets the tone for the nation in that day, and he sees and he's discouraged. And he's spiritually spent. He's come down from the mountaintop, we would say, and he is physically spent as well. We think of how exhausting it would be to go through what he went through. And think of how he's been used by God, and yet we see him here in complete weakness. We could see his cry to God just being one step away from being suicidal. He's saying, Lord, take my life. He feels the vanity of this broken world. He uh, had labored so hard for the kingdom of God, all seemingly to no avail. And so we see great weakness with Elijah. This is not unusual. The Bible has this again and again. But we see in this prayer that even though he feels this way, he's acknowledging that because God is the Lord of life, only God has the right to take his life. He knows that he is not, he has no right to do that. Others in the Bible prayed for death. Moses in Numbers chapter 11, verse 15, he asked God to put him to death. Job, we know that Job in Job 10, cursed the day of his birth, wished that he had never been born. Jeremiah twenty fourteen cursed the day of his birth in very strong opposition to the Lord's work. Jonah chapter 4, verse 3, Jonah asked God to take away his life. This is not that surprising. But notice that all of these men in these situations took their despair to God. Elijah took his despair to God. At least you could say that about him in his discouragement. It's funny. It reminds me of Psalm 88. You could read the whole psalm. It's the only psalm that ends with in a sense, no turning point in the psalm. Uh, It ends with, my companions have become darkness. But during that psalm, it it says there that, um, I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength, like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit. In the regions dark and deep, your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. That's a very dark psalm, but the one encouragement we can get from that psalm is that it's discouragement and pain expressed in the presence of God to the Lord. And that's certainly something that we need to take to heart, that in our times of discouragement, remember that God calls us to take our discouragement to the Lord. The famous British preacher Charles Spurgeon was known for his constant, almost constant battles with depression. Some say that it had to do with his condition of gout, but he's quoted as saying that he could weep like a child and not know why he was weeping not know the reason why. He just felt so overwhelmed and discouraged. But Elijah takes his burden to the Lord and submits his life and his discouragement to the Lord. Think for a moment about that. 
Christianity, the Bible, does not gloss over deep suffering and deep discouragement. Elijah's experience of despair challenges us not to get the wrong idea of what Christianity is like. It tells us that the health, wealth, prosperity gospel is utterly false. In other words, the view that the Christian life really ought to be, if you have enough faith, going from strength to strength and faith to faith, victory after victory, your life in every aspect a triumph. That is not what the Bible says. And here, Elijah was in deep discouragement. Some of it may have been self-absorbed. Certainly, I don't doubt that. But largely, it was discouragement concerning kingdom zeal, kingdom purposes. This was a man who had a great heart for the Lord and for the the word of God to advance in his nation with his people. Makes us stop to think about that. Let's go to the next point. A God-directed journey to Mount Sinai is the third feature of our text. We could say a journey in the steps of Moses. Interestingly, when the angel gives him, when he wakes up and there's the food, and the angel speaks to him and says at the end of verse 7, Arise and eat for the journey is too great for you. Is the angel just saying that he knows where Elijah's going to go and he needs to eat a lot and, you know, be sustained? I think there's clear implications here that, that Elijah's journey to Mount Horeb, which is, you need to know, is the same as Mount Sinai, the mountain of God where the Ten Commandments were, were given, that this was intended by God. This was the purpose of God. Elijah was no longer just running for his life. He had already come 100 miles south from Samaria. You know, that's away from Israel through Judah, which was a different nation at that time, south of Judah to Beersheba. That was really far enough to get away from Jezebel and her henchmen. And then he goes a day's journey into the wilderness, and then he eats this food and so forth. And then it's time to go further. This is at God's direction. Clearly, it's implied here. And there are these pairs of things that happen. Twice Elijah sleeps. Twice the angel touches him. And twice he eats. And it's interesting, isn't it? What is God's response to Elijah's request that he might die, that God would take his life? God takes care of him. He feeds him. He's touched by an angel. He uh, restores him. He's able to sleep. And it's interesting what's not said. God doesn't rebuke him for his request to die. It's not saying that request was right, but he doesn't rebuke this man. He gives restoration. And he's really, I believe, sent by God on this journey to Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai where the most important Old Testament events took place, the giving of the Ten Commandments, where the people of Israel became the covenant people of God in a special way, in a covenant with God, where Moses fasted 40 days and 40 nights and received the Ten Commandments, where Moses saw God's glory when God hid him in the cleft of a rock, 
and Moses beheld the so-called backside of God's glory. He was not allowed to see his face. Don't we already begin to see the parallels here between Elijah and Moses, both on the same mountain, both in the cave or the cleft, both seeing the presence of God in some sense, the only two men to stand in the presence of God on the mountain of God. And so we see this journey. And then we see the fourth feature of our text, this strange question. The word of the Lord comes to him, verse 9, he was in the cave on the mountain, and the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? Now there's debate. How much of this was rebuke? How much of this is invitation for Elijah to pour out his heart and to speak what is on his heart? Some commentators make the point that this is an invitation for Elijah to, in a sense, make his case before God, almost a legal court proceeding, his case against a covenant-breaking nation. And twice God asks him this, and twice Elijah responds. We ask, why is God asking him this? Didn't God send him here? It seems evident that God sent him to this mountain. And it may be a gentle rebuke, but mostly I want to look at this as an opportunity for two things that God was doing. Look at this. The first is on a personal level with Elijah himself. God's question gave Elijah the opportunity to unburden his heart. Elijah answers, verse 10, he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Do we hear the gentleness of God to Elijah, giving him this opportunity to unburden his heart to to him? Certainly God already knows all this, but Elijah needs to know that God hears his Burden, his heavy burden. Elijah had these these kingdom burdens for the people of God, the people that God had called and chosen and loved, the people that God set His special love on. And Mount Sinai under Moses, this was this was certified by covenant. And now, the people of God had disowned their God. This was a very serious. Matter And it's true, Elijah is jealous for the Lord. Let's think of applications. How deeply are we so zealous for the Lord's work? Have we ever been so troubled by apostasy? I have to admit that I probably have never been as troubled as Elijah is. I'm troubled at times but it's probably because of the spiritual dullness of my heart that I am not more troubled by apostasy in our day. That the church is all over the place in terms of its fidelity, its faithfulness to the word of God and the truth of God. Have we ever been so troubled that we would be utterly spent for the kingdom of God? 
Yes, there, Elijah is a weak man, a sinful man. James says with passions just like we have. But here was a man who was zealous for God. But here we see the tenderness of God to him, asking him this question twice and allowing Elijah to unburden his heart to the Lord his God. Think about kingdom concerns that you have. You know, the Lord's Prayer says we're to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And the larger catechism talks about all the ways that we pray for the kingdom of God to come, and you pray for the kingdom of God. We had a baptism uh, service this morning where babies were baptized and parents are praying for their, the kingdom of God to come in their child's life. And for years, every Christian parent prays for his child. And then sometimes children run away from it all. It brings great discouragement. Maybe it's a marriage that you made faithful vows and then your marriage falls apart and you wanted it to be saved, but it's broken and and you're discouraged. There are, there are lots of occasions when the expectations and the hopes that we have as the people of God for, for good things are crushed in our hands. And here we see that in, in this case, whether it's over the apostasy of God's people or some other aspect of the kingdom of God coming in us and through us into the people in our lives, we see that there is a refuge in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're called to come to him. What an example, what a, what a picture for us of God's tenderness and gentleness with his prophet. Never a word of rebuke in the text. But the second aspect of this strange question, the second part of the answer, is that Elijah is here standing in the place of Moses and testifying that the covenant is broken, like this legal court procedure. He's, in a sense, bringing his case before the Lord. And some commentaries say, well, what Elijah says is kind of self-absorbed, and it's, some commentaries have said that he's only speaking half-truths. They take the idea that, um, you know, the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, for example. And they say, well, didn't they recently return? On Mount Carmel, chapter 18, didn't they return to the Lord well? Not really. We're not sure of that. And evidence bears that out, that there's no great revival. They've torn down the altars, and one commentary says, but didn't Elijah rebuild the altar of the Lord? Yes, but generally this is true. And even the point about I I only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Uh, Others have said, well, look at Obadiah, shielding 200 prophets of the Lord. Didn't Elijah know about that? Well, the point is, Elijah was the only one who was openly testifying against the prophets of Baal and, in a sense, standing against them. So, really, I don't know that I believe the idea that Elijah is speaking half-truths. I take the view that Elijah is really speaking about the nations breaking the covenant of God. Fundamentally, that's what had happened. And he was right. And it's interesting that after the Lord, we're going to get back to the theophany, but later on in chapter 19, after God appears and speaks in the still small voice, look at this answer. Maybe when I read verses 15 to 17, you thought, what what is that doing in the text here? 
there's this part about uh, go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus and then Elijah's to anoint Hazael, king of Syria, and then Jehu, the son of Nimsi, be king of Israel, and then Elisha, the son of Shaphat, to be the prophet in his place. And then verse 17 talks about judgment. Anyone who escapes the sword of Hazael, uh, who's going to be deadly for Israel, and, and then whoever escapes the sword of Jehu, Elisha shall put to death. God is answering in verses 15 to 18 by judgment, verses 15 to 17, this, this destruction that's going to come from these anointed ones. And then 18, verse 18 has to do with God's grace still. So God is answering. There are these three figures to bring judgment. And this is about 150 years before the nation of Israel is taken by God into exile and in a sense destroyed almost. And for the next 150 years, it's going to be a time of God's judgments falling on Israel. This is, in other words, there's a change in course here. You're not going to see uh, the prophets trying to convert the monarchy, so to speak. They're going to be working, but it's going to be more along the lines of the schools of the prophets being built up to preach the word of God and to change hearts and lives. And so there's this answer that God gives. Those are the four features that I want us to bear in mind. But then our second major point is the presence of God in the still small voice, in the low whisper. Look with me. After Elijah makes his point in verse 10, then we see the Lord, what he does in his appearing, we would say, verse 11. And God said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But God, the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. The King James has a still, small voice. I love that phrase. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah repeats his case. The main point of this entire text, I believe, is the presence of God in this still small voice. This comes after these first three powerful manifestations of the presence of God, but it says in each case, the Lord is not in these things. It's interesting because if you compare this to Moses and the mountain, Mount Sinai, when the people of Israel were there hundreds of years beforehand, God, it says, descended in fire and smoke and earthquake. It was something that caused the Israelites to tremble, to tremble because it was evidence of the presence of God. But it's a little bit different here. There God had come to give the law in unswerving devotion to his character and his holiness. The law reflects the excellencies of God's person, who he is. And for sinners, for the Israelites, the law was an expression of the holiness of God. And it was, in one sense, not good news. 
If you broke it at one point, you were condemned. We know that the Bible says that if you offend in one point, you are guilty of breaking it all. And so, it's not that God's holiness has changed at all, but now, with Elijah, and I think it points ahead to Jesus Christ, Elijah hears this low whisper, this still, small point. What does this connote? There are a couple things this connotes. The still, small voice connotes intimacy. Have you ever whispered to somebody from far away? Our grandson is four, and we were at a violin recital Friday night, and he knew he was supposed to be quiet, so he whispered like this because, you, you know, we were down the pew a little bit from him. I guess you can whisper from afar, but doesn't whispering connote intimacy? You know, you usually whisper when you're real close because nobody else, you don't want anyone else to hear. If anyone will commune with God, the idea, I think, is this text is that there's intimacy from a whisper, from this still small voice. This also connotes weakness. We think of the New Testament verse in Second Corinthians where, where God says to Paul, my power is made perfect in weakness. The low whisper, the still small um, voice connotes weakness. It connotes grace. Interestingly, Elijah goes out when he hears the low whisper. He goes out and stands at the entrance of the cave, even then with his uh, robe draped over him, with his cloak draped over him. But Elijah is not consumed. It's very similar. In fact, it's possible that this cave is very possible. I think it's likely that this cave was the cave where Moses saw the presence of God, the backside of the presence of God, when God allowed him to come out and see the backside of his glory. And, 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 emo- and Elijah was not consumed. And then we also, I think, learned that the whisper was discernible. It was speech. A whisper, a voice, is speaking. It was revelatory. It was revelation from God. It wasn't something that could not be understood. And all of these are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And doesn't it look ahead to the Mount of Transfiguration? When you think of it, who was on the Mount of Transfiguration? Moses and Elijah, when Jesus was transfigured before them in his glory. And the three disciples who were there, Peter, James, and John, were not consumed by the presence of Jesus Christ the glory of God in the presence of the God-man made flesh, the very word of God made flesh, coming in weakness and humility and coming. In the Gospels, the Mount of Transfiguration takes place when Jesus begins to turn to the cross and go to the cross. What a beautiful picture of God's grace to us in Jesus. This still, small voice connotes that, I believe. It looks ahead to the new covenant, which would be inaugurated through Jesus Christ. Think with me at the application of this, because it's somewhat parallel to the final verse of our text, verse 18. I think if you look at the structure of chapter 19, there's a parallel between the still small voice and the promise of grace at the end of This text in verse 18, Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. 
someone has said that this promise of God, and you see a different program really here, like I said, that now God is going to be working um, with the remnant and blessing and promising things to the believing remnant in Israel. And it, you could say it's, it's been said that this is the Old Testament equivalent of Jesus' promise, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. In a sense, that's what God is saying to Elijah. All is not lost for your kingdom hosts, hopes, Elijah. Take heart. Do not lose heart. Outward displays do not necessarily and typically change hearts. Rather, the gospel proclaimed by weak servants is the means that God uses to transform people and to ultimately change the world. And we've seen this throughout the church age as God has done his work through the gospel being proclaimed. And so we come to the 500th anniversary of the Reformation and we ask, what is God doing in our day? Do we not see much to be discouraged about? Yes. We are not omniscient. We see some things of encouragement, some things of discouragement, maybe more of discouragement. There are hopeful signs and certainly hopeful signs in other parts of the world where God is at work in marvelous ways. But can we not say that we need a modern reformation? And if we are feeling like Elijah at times, take heart. Or maybe for your own life in terms of what you're facing in your life, maybe you're sitting under the broom tree, so to speak, wishing that... You could go to glory, and maybe you need to be encouraged by the fact that God is at work. God encouraged Elijah with this truth that he had 7,000, and God was at work. That had not bowed to Baal. Elijah saw it as much more dark than it really was. Let us pray. Let us labor. Let us trust our God to do renewed works in our day. I was reading in World Magazine about the location where William Tyndale, one of the early reformers, was burned at the stake in Vilvord, Belgium. And it's interesting because the author of this article in World Magazine says there was a little plaque there where William Tyndale was burned at the stake. But the author noted that close to that point in this city, there was a location where many Reformation martyrs were burned at the stake. And there wasn't even a historical marker at that place. The point was, interestingly, totally forgotten. Like Dr. Rogers said, the world doesn't really recognize the Reformation and what God did through the Reformation. But God is still at work. And it's interesting, when William Tyndale was being burned at the stake, it's recorded that his last words were, O Lord, open the eyes of the king. He was talking about King Henry VIII, the king of England at the time, whose agents caught him and eventually turned him over to the authorities, to the uh, Catholic authorities at the time, and he was burned at the stake. But the irony of William Tyndale's death, here was this man who essentially translated the Bible into English in such beauty. His writings are so beautiful. And it's so ironic that almost 100 years after that, King James would use essentially William Tyndale's translation to give the King James authorized version of that day, much of it from Tyndale himself. 
God was at work. Even though God didn't open up the eyes of King Henry VIII, he used William Tyndale's translation in a powerful way. Just one example of how we can be encouraged. We do not know what God is doing in our day. Our calling, Elijah's calling, was to be faithful to the work that God had called him, to trust in God and to seek his glory. And may you and I do the same. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this example of this man of God who was just like we are. We certainly feel that we are in his shadow because he was a great man of God. But we know that there was one greater that his life pointed to, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who was without sin, who was never so spiritually despondent as to pray this prayer that God would take his life, but could say, O Lord, thy will be done. Even though he wanted the cup to pass from him, he could say, thy will be done, and do so without any sin at all. O Lord, help us to gaze upon Jesus Christ. If there is anyone here to tonight who hasn't put their trust in Jesus Christ, may you work in their life. Father, we ask for you to bring revival in our day, certainly that you would revive us, that you would revive your church, that you would revive your church in the United States and in the West and around the world, that you would bring refreshment and blessing and that the gospel would go forth with great power and that your name might be praised through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.